Recruiting is such that you win on speed and quality. It's all about those two dimensions. So the better that you can be at assessing quality and then also move on it and move quickly, the better you'll do. Comp is always a factor, no question, but comp is never at the top of the list. So as long as compensation is fair, you've got a shot at that particular person. The better you do in that interview process to uncover what motivates that person, why are they gonna join your particular company, what gets them out of bed in the morning, the more you know and the better chance you have of architecting your, your pitch and working to get them on board. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Sarah Fryer from Square, Nate Blacharzik from Airbnb, and many others. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Also, I want to tell you about our sister podcast, 996, a bi-weekly show on tech entrepreneurship in China hosted by my fellow managing partner at GGV Capital, Hans Tung, and our colleague, Zara Zhang. In the show, they interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry, as well as tech leaders with a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. It's a fantastic show, and I've learned a ton from these interviews. You can take a listen by searching for 996 in any podcast app. Without further ado, here's today's episode. I'm really excited for Founder Real Talk's first Salon episode today. Salon episodes differ from the usual format. Instead of interviewing a founder, we'll have an expert from the field, someone who works closely with founders day-to-day, who specializes on a topic that many founders face. On today's episode, we have Jen Holmstrom, and Jen's the head of talent here at GGV Capital. And we're going to talk about how to hire and retain talent in what is a very competitive marketplace. Jen works closely with our founders as they build out their executive leadership teams, And she's built programs for founders and executive management at our companies and others to help them scale, called Founders and Leaders, and we'll talk more about that. Before joining GGV, Jen led the executive search function at Facebook, and she also spent time with several search firms here in the Bay Area. When working with founders, Jen gets tons of questions around talent, hiring, compensation, and I know that founders out there listening deal with the same issues as well. So this should be a really fun episode. Jen, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you, Glenn. It's great to be here. Awesome. So let's jump right in. When you meet with GGV portfolio companies, what's the biggest pain point you hear about from founders? Um, It should be no surprise that hiring and hiring engineers is usually a topic that comes up quite readily. It's a tough thing to do, and founders are usually trying to devise a strategy to identify who they want, how they're going to go find them, and next, how they're going to get them on board. I'm sure you've, you've felt the pain that founders typically feel. How hard is it to really bring somebody on when you're at a startup? 
I think it can be really challenging. The better that the startup knows their narrative, the better that they know how they have a plan for going to market, to tell their story, to create some excitement amongst the not only engineering but broader candidate community, and to get these folks engaged and excited about what they're doing, the easier ultimately it will be for them to to hire. It sounds a lot like a sales process. Very much so. It really is. So, you know, going to like inception, because a lot of the folks who listen to Founder Real Talk are starting companies or really early on, and they have to make decisions about like who co-founders will be and those first early employees. What are some things people should be looking for in co-founders or first couple of employees when they think about, well, if I want to scale, what are important features or facets of people that are going to help me scale? So great question. I for really really early teams, so potentially a co-founder or just say your first 10 or 15 employees, that crux of employee base that that is the foundation of the company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I often like to see teams coming together who either know each other in some capacity or with one degree of separation and or have gotten to know each other through their own networks. I really think that's kind of the best way to get those foundational folks in place and then you start to build from there. Okay, so familiarity is key. How about like early culture? You know, do you find that companies that try to build a culture early do better with with hiring later? And, and how important is that in the whole process? I think, great question. I think I think a shared set of values is pretty important. Building a startup is not easy, <laughs> as everybody out there knows. So if you share a set of fundamental values, and the more as you get to know each other, and this is why knowing familiarity helps, it helps as, as you have kind of a shared context for going forward and going through difficult things and building together. There's a bit of a guidepost around what you fundamentally believe as a team that starts to create the fabric of the company. Mm. Okay, so familiarity, early culture being established, these are all things that that founders should be doing when they're thinking about wanting to to build a company that they can recruit into successfully. Yeah, that and also I should uh, just add to that, a complementary skill sets really important. So where, you know, your co-founder strengths may be not your strength and building from there. So where you have a well-rounded team versus everybody being a well-rounded player can help. It seems like when you're building a team, for many of our startups, at some point they face this, this question about, okay, like I've sort of exhausted everybody in my network and the people I've initially hired have kind of gone out and hired the people in their network. And now we have to think about how are we going to find people who we just don't know, who we know we need to add to our company. And that's where recruiters tend to come in. Right. Um, that's and, typically where the call comes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there are lots of folks out there who re- will recruit you know, for engineers, for salespeople, for, for various roles into companies. And then there are moments where companies have to decide, hey, am I going to bring this function in-house? When am I going to add recruiting to be one of the things that I do? Talk to us a little bit about that moment and you know what you advise with respect to when companies think about bringing that recruiting function in-house. What are the positives? What are the negatives? What are the risks and things that they really need to do right for that function to work well? Absolutely. I think um, most founders kind of grapple with this as they get to that point. You know, there, there has to be a good term for it out there. But where you have, as you described, to have just gotten to the edge of your own network and you start to have to, you know, think about how to get out to the market beyond your personal networks and start to assess 
recruit and onboard the folks that you do not know. Um, so in terms of when that makes sense, I, I always like to look to what I call recruiting math. So how many people are you going to bring on over the next, like, if, if you can try to sketch out, you know, this next six to 12 months and think about how many people you're going to bring on board, if you want to hire 10 for the sake of simplicity, maybe not 10, maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, some significant number. And then you think about the number of candidates that you typically will have to interview in order to get to that number. You start to work backwards and think about how many interviews at the top of the funnel that means in order to translate to X number of hires. Mm -hmm. Um, Then that starts to make the case for bringing somebody in-house in a recruiting function Mm -hmm. who's going to manage all of that. So it's a lot to manage all those candidate interviews, the whole funnel, the candidate experience, which I think is incredibly important, especially in this competitive market, um, to get to the end And can you get that all out of a recruiter, or do you need to hire recruiters and then people around the recruiters who can manage the, the, the rest of the experience, as you say? So I think that recruiting, um, companies that do it really, really well from from the get-go often have what I, what I call a culture of recruiting, where the founders set the expectation universally across the organization that recruiting is everybody's job. So it's not something that falls to a particular function, per se, but it is something that is mm. an expectation across the founding team, the leadership team, and the broader team that everybody recruits. And when you have that kind of a mindset within the walls of an organization, candidates can feel that when they come in the door. So it's candidate experience is everybody's job. You know, whether they walk away and think great things or not as great things about the company is the the onus really lands on every single individual mm-hmm. within that within have those you, walls. Have you seen any of our companies or, or other companies you've advised that are doing unique things on the candidate experience front to really stand out from the crowd? Yes. So th- this may be a bit of an extreme example, but we had one company who, you know, when, when a candidate would come to the front door, the whole company would stand up and welcome them. And <laughs> again, maybe a little extreme, but I'm not suggesting that That's everybody awesome. has to do that. Yeah. But um, the certainly left an impression. And, and these are things like little things like that that companies can do that don't cost anything, that are cultural, and they indicate to a candidate what their experience is going to be like joining that team. And I've heard that, you know, as particularly as companies get larger, the recruiters are doing their job, but then they've got to process candidates. And even just getting interviews scheduled and making sure that uh, a candidate sees everybody they're supposed to see in the process and keeping you know, the way that potential candidates are screened to some uniform sort of process is difficult. Any thoughts or suggestions there or things you've seen that companies are doing that that really is best in class? Yeah, so I think having a recruiting coordinator who is dedicated and responsible for Mm. getting all that scheduling done, this could be an office manager or a dedicated recruiting coordinator depending on the size of the team and the scale of the company. But somebody who's solely responsible for getting the logistics set up, making sure that interviews happen on time. And again, just ensuring that the founders have a mindset and that it's a priority that the trains run on time and mm. everything is positive and smooth. That That's not always easy to pull off, but if the intent is there, I think it really makes a difference, especially when you're competing with when a great engineer may have 10 companies to choose from. Well, and, and how about the hiring manager? You hear a lot about like the hiring manager who's oftentimes also you know an employee, an executive at the company with a, with a day job. Mm-hmm. How do those people make sure they fit into the process and not slow things down and and make the experience really good so that you know companies are able to hire the people they really want to hire? 
Yeah, so I think that this again comes back to coordination amongst the leadership team and an expectation and a mindset amongst all of the hiring managers across mm-hmm. that organization. So anybody who's going to be a part of that interview process, whether that's the actual hiring manager or the extended interview team, as long as they are coordinated up front, they have shared expectation and clarity around who's doing what kind of a, an assessment for that candidate and a general agreement on who they want to bring in, what kind of a skill set and cultural ad, let's call it, instead Mm -hmm. of cultural fit, but a cultural ad that would behoove the broader company, the better chance they have to creating a great impression and bringing on the best people they can. Mm. Let's go down to the nitty gritty here. You're saying like like companies really need to execute and they need to move quickly. What does that look like? If, If a great engineer is getting 10 offers, do you want to have that person like with an offer in hand on their way out the door or, or is that their expectation in the market these days or how fast must you react to really be considered competitive in, in this kind of market? So I think of expectations and there's agreement up front amongst that interview team that they are going to be ready to go to offer if need be. That's not necessary in every single case, Mm -hmm. certainly. Mm -hmm. No expectation that you have to interview and go to offer on the same day necessarily. In certain instances, those are more unique. But yes, that could help you win a candidate if there's just an immediate fit. But I will say that speed wins. Recruiting is such that you win on speed and quality. It's all about those two dimensions. So the better that you can be, at assessing quality and quality just defined in terms of what's best fit for your particular organization, both in terms of skills and cultural ad, and then also move on it and move quickly, the better you'll do. Hmm. Again, another parallel with like selling and even in the VC process, speed wins and the ability to assess quickly is really important. So it sounds like recruiting is really similar. So I want to ask a little bit about this role that I keep hearing more and more about and I see some of my companies adopting head of head of people. You know, there there used to be a head of HR and someone who ran recruiting, but what is a head of people and why is it becoming a prominent role in startup land and and like what are you seeing out there? So I think there's been, you know, this this evolution of the head of people role and you can tell just by the name itself. You know, historically the head of HR was a role, the head of recruiting was a role, and now there is a blended function of sorts, not in all startups, they're certainly distinct in many, but there's more of an emphasis with the development if you will of the concept of employee engagement. You know, there's been a little bit more Evolution, again, around the concept, I think there's been a movement from employee satisfaction, which is, you know, people can be really satisfied, but not necessarily productive, to Mm. more the concept around engagement, which means that you're not only satisfied, but energized and about what you're doing leads to more performance and productivity. Mm -hmm. So the head of people role is all-encompassing in that, you know, it's more around engagement, it's around what your workforce is doing, and the more their end-to-end experience. And in some cases, that includes things like facilities. So what the actual physical experience of your employees is when they come to work every day. So it, it's all around, you know, the head of people is more what is your employee's experience from the time they get, you know, the the cold outreach from one of your recruiters or from you, the hiring manager, through their journey at the organization. And, you know, for folks who are good heads of people, what are their backgrounds? And, you know, what, what makes someone good at that job? Great question. I think that there is no one single answer to that. Mm-hmm. People, you know, a lot, there's a bit of a trend line where, where 
people who have not had a background necessarily in HR or who have not gone from HR generalist to HRBP to head of people are coming into the function. So there are former attorneys or you know people who are heads of sales, all kinds of different backgrounds out there. And I think all of those different backgrounds can make a great head of people. Another thing that we're getting asked quite a bit from CEOs is uh, they love folks in the function who can be a really great partner to them and understand how their employee strategy, if you will, ties to bottom line business results. So yeah, is that is that head of people role, is that is that executive typically, you know, at the e-staff table and reporting directly to the CEO? It sounds like a pretty important position. Typically, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, not always. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it rolls up to the COO or to the CFO. Okay, but I think increasing number of companies they're having a report directly to the CEO. And what have you seen in terms of sort of timeline? Like we talked about, bringing on internal recruiters, and then we talked about you know ahead of people. Can you give us some rough? estimates about like at what stage a company typically will do each of those things from what you've seen and maybe in terms of like the number of people they have or some other metric that you think about there was one study out there that that indicated <laughs> that at the at the uh, employee count of 23 was the optimum ah. time to bring to bring on the head of people but again i would say it's scenario based it depends i would encourage companies to get out there and think about it early especially given you know a few trends one the fact that it's you know, if you're Bay Area based, it's really expensive to to hire engineers. If you're in New York, it's it's expensive to hire engineers. So um, companies are increasingly building distributed teams. But with more complexity coming into the the managing the workforce mm-hmm. issue, the earlier the better, I would say, in terms of just contemplating okay. how to how to manage it. Mm, interesting. So maybe fifty people, hundred people. I would say fifty people going to hundred, going to three hundred, going to six hundred. Definitely. Bring somebody in who can help develop some of that people infrastructure, if you will, uh-huh. um, so that you you get it done early and you get it done really well, that you can use it to build on over time. Got it. And I want to pull on another thread you left open, talking about engagement as a, you know, a way that things have evolved from the idea of employee satisfaction. Now let's focus on employee engagement. So it's not just are employees happy, but are they are they actually getting stuff done? Right. There's old school performance reviews, there's target setting, John Doerr's book that just recently came out on the importance of measuring Mm -hmm. what you manage. How do you hold people accountable in an organization but also ensure that they have high satisfaction? Great question. So we are lucky that numerous tools exist out there, mm-hmm. and, and we're increasingly able to use data to understand what our workforce, kind of the sentiment across the workforce, but also what specific areas and maybe functions or horizontals are spots where you can you may need to tweak a few things in order to both hit the metric of uh, employee sat and <laughs> development and also productivity. Mm-hmm. Often those things kind of go together. And so there are different tools that drill into that where you can really survey the employees on a regular basis and have a much better understanding and insight into what's going on. Okay, so you don't need to name any names, but like what types of tools should founders be thinking about? Are, are, are there you know employee sentiment 
or there surveying are. tools. There are. I think there are surveying tools out there that are really unbelievably helpful. Even if you're not at a particular scale, you know, if you're not hundreds of people, you can still use them because you can really tailor those tools according to whatever size of workforce you are mm-hmm. and in order to gain insights. And some of them even have, you know, if there are spots like, for example, if you have a weak spot on communication. So you're getting bigger, you're growing quickly, and employee sentiment is that they don't feel like they're still connected, if you will, to that leadership team and to decisions that are being made. Mm. Some of the tools have a social component where you can see what other companies have done to address a similar type of challenge. Oh, interesting. So there's some great tools out there to help with it. Okay. So I want to you know, keep pushing on this, right? That there's uh, definitely a move that we're seeing at GGV and, and elsewhere in the startup world towards more and more distributed teams, right? It's getting more expensive and more difficult to build teams in some of the startup hotspots like like the Silicon Valley uh, Bay Area, like New York, like LA. And so we're seeing many of our companies now, you know, have extremely distributed teams where they might have one or two centers outside of headquarters where they're building teams. Some companies really allow people to work from home and will hire people anywhere. That must make things a lot more difficult. You know, if I'm thinking about the importance of culture that you talked about when you're trying to hire up a team. How does that change the dynamic once you've got such, you know, a really distributed team? How does that change things and, and any suggestions that you give for teams that are that are built distributed in that way? So I think distributed teams are becoming more and more common and they're happening faster, just given the necessity in, in some cases to get to market and also just the availability of talent all over the world. So in terms of maintaining and scaling culture and creating that connective tissue, which is what I think you're getting at. How do you do that and scale quickly and build additional offices all over the world? I really do think it comes back to the values and the cultural pillars that define who you are. The better defined your values and the behaviors associated with those values, the more that employees will know who you are and what expectations are no matter where they're sitting and what they're doing. How do you promulgate the culture, though, when when people are you know in different locations? Are there tools you use? Do you recommend companies get together every so often because that gets expensive as teams grow? Absolutely. So as as my friend Jeff Diana always says, who is the chief people officer at both Success Factors and then also Atlassian, cannot emphasize enough the importance of getting people physically together at least once a year. So okay. even if it's you know it is it is an expense, no question about that. But the value derived from the in person communication where trust is built and relationships are developed. Um, pretty important. Now, that said, there are excellent tools out there, some of which you have invested in, Glenn, um, <laughs> to create um, to create that, that communication mechanism where people can feel connected every hour of every day. Yeah, you know, I was chatting with the founder of one of our companies, who shall go nameless, but a, a large and growing team that's highly distributed, and I asked him, you know, what technology do you wish exists that doesn't today? And I was expecting you know, some deep infrastructure answer. And what I got was I really could use a constantly updating directory with faces of my organization and context as well. Like this person right now is here, which means their time zone is here. And if they're not responding, it's because, you know, it's the middle of the night (laughs) or they're really good at X or they're working on a project Y right now, or they, you know, work on this account. In you know support or sales, very basic. But for him, that was 
going to be hugely valuable. And right. you know, he so he's now out looking, and we're thinking about, hey, is there a company to go start, or are there some startups in that space? But it seems like there are just some rudimentary things that need to get solved for distributed teams to work to I work really well. Totally together. agree. Interesting. Another thing that one of our companies does. Uh, that's that's highly distributed is like a, a form of of chat roulette where the whole company for a half hour, I think once a month, it's pencils down and and you know fingers off keyboards and you just randomly get assigned to somebody else in the organization over you know over Zoom or something and you yep. have to talk to that person yes. and get to know them and it just it sort of forces each employee to get to know people in the organization that they otherwise wouldn't know and feel kind of more part of a whole, I guess. That's right. And companies are definitely doing that. There are a few different tools out there that do that, where it's kind of a roulette and you end up having coffee with somebody you completely don't know in a totally different function. Mm. And it's having employees comment on it quite frequently. It's I think it's having a really outsized effect for, for a seemingly simple interaction. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about recruiting and the challenges that you're seeing companies face, particularly at startup stage. Obviously, there's there's been a lot of wage inflation in certain areas. If you're an excellent developer, a well-known salesperson with a lot of experience and and success, if you've had leadership roles in other startups, people have you know a lot of options, and salaries have been going up, and so it's expensive for startups to build out their teams, and that gets exacerbated when they're competing with larger companies. I know you came from Facebook, and I'm sure you don't want to. Think this way, but you know, Facebook is brutal when it comes to competing with startups for talent. Uh, same with Google and, and other large companies. And startups oftentimes just can't pay as much as big companies that are highly profitable can pay. So, how do you win in that environment if you're a startup? What's your go-to move when you know you can't pay as much as the competition? So, I always like to to work with founders to get really get their story well understood uh, and, and their employer brand understood. So the better that founders and any hiring manager within an organization can articulate why somebody should come, what is the value and why should somebody come work for your company, the better they are at that, the more successful they'll be despite compensation. Comp is always a factor, no question. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the gold standard data set is still Gallup, if you will, <laughs> around survey data for why people join a company, uh-huh. why they stay as well. And comp is never at the top of the list. Interesting. So as long as compensation is fair, people care about it being fair, as long as it's fair, you've got a shot at that particular person. And the better you do at being able to tell your story, creating value, and then also understanding that particular individual. So the better you do in that interview process to uncover what motivates that person, why are they going to join your particular company, what gets them out of bed in the morning, the more you know and the better chance you have of architecting your <laughs> your pitch and working to get them on board. And then I always find, I just wanted to throw in here, I think really personal touches, letting candidates know that we heard you, we listened to you, mm. and we really we really acknowledge who you are. Um, and you can do that in a variety of ways. But Any, any yeah. tricks of the trade, any ideas to, gonna... <laughs> to personalize the process that you've <laughs> yes. seen work well? Uh, yeah, I was, I was fortunate to work with the Instagram team, and we used to send pictures of the team uh. and, you know, to that candidate or take a picture of the person's desk. Like, what space will they be on? Occupying, ah, really personalize it. Really personalizing it and sending that to your candidates. And it just it helps. All those personal touches matter. Oh, that that's really interesting. At GGV, I guess we have a lot of swag. We use swag when we we're do. trying to recruit people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that can that can never hurt. No. A nice t-shirt never that's hurts. That's right. Got it. In a startup, 
again, going back to the importance of engagement and reviewing people and, you know, making sure they understand the goals of the organization and how their goals then cascade down from that. What happens when you have to have a tough conversation? You know, I, I know that for some founders, they haven't really ever had to deal with managing people. And sometimes, you know, people aren't working out or they need coaxing to get to the right way of working or the, the right answer. What do you suggest to the founders who are having to have those tough conversations? Like when should they have them and what context should they try to have them? Any sort of tricks of the trade that, that can make those conversations go better as opposed to, to being terrible? Absolutely. So, you know, we, we have a, a leadership a development program at, here at GGV, and one of the things that we talk about in that program is how to have a tough conversation. These, you know, it's it's a part of building a company is having to have these interactions, and, and they're certainly not always comfortable. Yeah. So, one of the first things that we share is to start with the facts and state your intent, mm-hmm. so that people know that you know you're you're not starting from a place of pure emotion, which it's often tempting to do, but rather just starting with with your broader intent that you're having this conversation because you care and you want this to be a great outcome all the way around the board and then like just using facts back and forth. So it, so it gets away from you know it feeling like too much of an attack and mm-hmm. then just knowing and keeping in mind that it's always personal. So d- don't, uh, don't start with this is not personal. Yeah, we asked Nick Mehta, the CEO of Gainsight, who was on Founder Real Talk in a past episode about something he believes that nobody else believes. And he said, you know, a lot of people believe, hey, it's not personal, it's just business. But I actually believe it's not business. It's it's personal. And every encounter is personal. I like it sounds that. Like, it sounds like it's the same way with really managing people. It's, it's a personal so. thing. It is. It's personal. Mm. So what can you do? If that's the case, what can you do as a manager? You know, many of our founders and execs manage lots of people. How do you become a more successful manager then? Are there some things you can think about, you know, a couple of tips that you have for execs who want to be successful in managing their teams? Absolutely. So a couple of things. I think always being open to developing yourself, developing critical listening skills, uh, and really working to understand the folks on your team and what each and every one of them wants and, and how to then help them achieve that particular outcome. You know, we we often say during founders and leaders, it's it's a one to one versus one to many mm. relationship as a manager. So what's working for one particular person on your team is not necessarily going to work across the team. So taking that individual approach is certainly helpful. So you got to customize with each which with each person. One to one. Yes. <laughs> yes. No one said it was going to be easy. No. No. Definitely not. Well, Jen, I, I hope you didn't find this Founder Real Talk session too difficult, but we're, what we're going to do is we're going to end with our hot seat questions. Okay, perfect. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right, so just say the first thing that comes in your mind, and uh, we'll spend about you know no more than a minute or so on, on each question. Okay. What book or article or some sort of content to consume do you recommend on this topic of building and managing teams to founders? First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham. Ah, why? It is a great book for first-time managers, and not just first-time managers, but anybody who's leading a team, to learn about the power of listening to your team members and then Mm -hmm. also how to leverage their strengths to drive performance and to help them realize who they are. That's great. Okay, I'm going to have to check that one out. What's your favorite interview question? What question have you seen work really well when you're trying to figure out if someone's the right fit? 
So to get to the topic of strengths, and I'm a big fan of that, mm-hmm. of managing that way, a great question is around, you know, if if you as the as the candidate are, are lost in your work and you look up at the clock and it's five o'clock and you don't realize what the, where the time has gone, what have you been doing? And the answer to that will tell you a lot about that particular person. So when you ask that of people, what what kinds of responses have you gotten that you've liked? I've uh, talked to a lot of engineers over time, so a lot of people been coding, <laughs> or building product. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's all over the place. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. the the more that you can pull out of somebody for uh-huh. you know a strength being, and this is from Marcus Buckingham, mm-hmm. not only what you're good at from a competency standpoint, but what you're good at and what you like to what do. What you like to do. That's where you're going to get the I, biggest I, bang for your buck. I always have found that the number one highest correlating factor with is a person going to do well in a job is did they want the job? Do they really want it? A question I ask, which is similar, is when you have a great day, what does that look like? And it's kind of of the same idea. And and oftentimes you find out, okay, well, this is what this person loves to do and what they're good at. Yeah, exactly. And if it matches the job you're hiring for, great. If it doesn't match... Bit of a flag. uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Okay, so... We've talked about the positives. Let's talk about the toughest day or think about a a tough day you've had in your career and what made it tough. Could be some process you went through at Facebook or here at GGV. Give us an example of a tough day. Well, I will say as somebody with an executive search background, you you have to be an optimist to to go through it. But um, one of my toughest days- Nobody can listen to this episode and not think you're an optimist, Jen. (laughs) I will say, um, and there's a lesson here, but uh, I thought I had a candidate who had signed the paperwork, had accepted the role. It was a huge hire. I had, so I thought, gotten the role filled, really difficult role. I was out on vacation celebrating, and I got the call that this particular individual had not shown up at work. Whoops. So lesson to me, it is never done until it's done. So even with the signed paperwork in hand, mm-hmm. you are never, ever done until that person is sitting in your office with their computer fired up working on something for your company. Okay, well, you're never, ever done recruiting, but you are officially done with the hot seat. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us on Founder Real Talk. I think people are really going to love hearing what you've had to say about how to build and retain great teams. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Karstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobyte, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. 
Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.